0: Well, we're getting ready to take off. I'm glad to see you all here tonight. Um, This is going to be week three in the How to Study the Bible series. Um, Again, those binders are there for you. Uh, I hope you find them helpful. And each week as we start a new series, uh, we'll be adding to that binder uh, for the next year. And so uh, I I just thought, you know, I'm one of those guys. I like keeping notes and being able to look back and see stuff. And I know sometimes I've been accused of of talking like drinking out of the fire hose. And so I thought it would be beneficial for you to have something to look back on, uh, if you like. Um, uh, let me start off with prayer. We'll recap a little bit, and then we'll dive, dive in. <coughs> uh, let's pray. Lord, we come to you now. We thank you so much for the opportunity uh, to be here tonight to dive into your word. And God, as we dive into your word, I pray, Lord, that you uh, you just lead this conversation tonight, Lord. Uh, we thank you for the, the privilege we have. And, and Lord, I, I, I pray that you don't, that that escape us, that we have such a privilege of having your word available to us. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for the privilege we have in this country to gather and study without fear of persecution. And we take a moment and, and remember, Lord, that around this world, there are people um who are literally risking their lives each time they they take their Bible up. And so we remember them. We ask for your provision and your safety in those areas. We thank you, Lord, for Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Um, uh, Tonight we are in part three of how to study the Bible. And again, I want to point out, that really what we're doing is walking through this diagram over and over and over again. And that's what we'll be doing again tonight, and that's what we'll do again in two weeks. Walking through this same diagram, but each time we're adding a new perspective of that diagram. Uh, tonight we're talking about the literary aspect of, of, of the Bible. Uh, th- this this uh, diagram is probably the most important thing but you'll see, and if you can walk away with this diagram in your head and then be able to apply that in your, in your personal Bible reading, that will help you immensely. Uh, the whole idea, let me just recap for us. When we read a passage of Scripture, we understand that there are two, like in this box, there are two primary sections. There's the time-bound section on the bottom, and there's the timeless audience at the top. When we read a Bible passage, we must, we must, we must Start in the bottom left and ask the question: Who wrote this? Who did they write it to? What was the occasion for the writing? You know, what, what's this? What did this mean originally to the ancient audience? That's oh, oh no! That's where we, we have to start. Uh, if we don't start there, then we can get real funky with our doctrine, with our teaching, with our with our theology. Uh, we've pointed out several errors that happen where you start on this quadrant here, where the contemporary audience is. If I start with myself, then I can make the text mean whatever I want it to mean. I can pick passages and verses, and, and, and I, I don't know if I shared with you in college. I I uh, preached a sermon about um, how is how it's not only right, but but. Not, not only morally right, but a, but a command to have a slave. Now, you, you all, we all understand that that would be foolishness. There's no, that's crazy. But if you cherry pick passages, you can make the Bible say whatever you want it to say. And if I start with me, and I, and I say, well, this is what I want this passage to stay and, and, and move backward, we can get real funky real fast. And historically, that's happened for, for centuries. And so we start with the ancient audience and say, what did this mean to them? And we take that then passage, or that section, or that verse that we're studying, and we say, okay, well, does other scripture line up with that? Is it supported elsewhere in, in the text? If it's just an isolated thing, well, then we have to be very careful about making a a a a, a theological claim or a, a practical claim on our lives from scripture if it's not supported elsewhere in scripture. And then we find we we take from this exegetical exegetical statement a, a theological statement we, we strip down the context the culture uh, where it was originally written and we and, and we uh, the terminology we used uh, briefly at least was uh, this is clothed in culture and context we strip it down so this is now a naked statement uh, it's it's taken out all of the the culture and the context to to have a a, a theological statement that that isn't marred by context or culture and then we contextualize it for today in this third quadrant. Does that make sense? Are we all clear there? And and so that's what we've been going through and that's what we'll continue to go through. Um, Tonight we start with the literary gap and and here's the diagram we see. Uh, It's just a way to illustrate our issue here, our dilemma here when it comes to the Bible. Uh, We are here now but the Bible was written at the earliest 2,000 years ago, right? The, 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 the latest pages were written 2,000 years ago. And so there's a, there's a gap here between the contemporary, that's us, and the ancient writing. And so we have to build a bridge from here back over to the ancient and then back to us in order to appropriately apply it. C.S. Lewis once said this, uh, there is uh, a sense in which the Bible— since it is, after all, literature cannot be properly read except as literature, in uh, the different parts of it as the different sorts of literature that they are. What what he's trying to convey there, and what we're going to try to convey tonight, is that there's no um, biblical literature. Right, the Bible is not a genre of literature. The Bible is a is a a hodgepodge of sorts of all, of all types of literature. And when we read literature, we must read that literature the way it was intended with the rules and the norms that would be expectant of that type of literature. Now that seems a little in the air, but we know how this works even in our world today. Uh, what, what types of literature do we have that that we use each day? What types of literature might you read? What types of literature have you read today? Let's start with that. You say, well, I don't read. Maybe you don't read, but we still read literature every day. We just don't call it that. What's what's something you've read today? I'm sorry? Text messages. That's a great example. Text messages. Think of the rules that are applied to text messages that aren't applied elsewhere. If I were to say to you, are you ready well you wouldn't say john that's not how you spell right Th- there are different norms that are expected and accepted with text messaging yeah and so and we and we understand those unvoiced norms w- what other types of literature have you read today emails emails are much different aren't they and then uh, the, the type of email e- we can even break it down there a personal email between uh, friend's it's going to be di- very different than a corporate email that's sent to a company. What other types of literature have you read today? I'm sorry? Science. S- I'm sorry. Science. science? Yeah, yeah. So, so like a science textbook, for example, or a journal is going to be written with expectations uh, that, that we understand, that, we, that, that are normative in that, in that realm. G- give me a couple more medical reports yeah yeah what about editorials social media i mean that's no holds barred right Uh, um, what about news there are expectations there are rules uh twitter There, there are different rules that apply as we read and interpret all of these different genres so we have these different genres an illustration here to start us off tonight Uh, Proverbs 22, verse 6, train up a child in the way he should go, even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now we've read that, we've preached that, we've heard that before, Uh, that's a a fantastic little proverb, Uh, but in order to really understand what that's meaning, we have to understand the context behind it, we have to understand the type of literature that it is, here's your homework, ma'am, we have to understand what it is. Because why? Well, if we misinterpret this, there are some pretty bad consequences to that. Consider this. It says, well, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. Well, what's that telling us? Let me ask you, what's it telling us? Raise your child to learn about God, and and then what is the, the effect of that? They will stay with that. So then what happens, if that's how we interpret it, what happens then when your child grows up and you've done that, you've trained them? Look, we were always at church. We did Bible study as a family. We read the Bible. We did all these things. I I trained this child in the way they should go, but now they are rebellious and they've run away. Well, that puts us in a dilemma with the Bible, doesn't it? Because the Bible says he will not depart from it. Well, he's departed from it, so that must mean either a couple a a series of things either I didn't do a good job as a parent oh maybe I failed my child God am I guilty of that or God maybe you lied maybe maybe you lied because I did this and my child still departed from the faith so so maybe the issue isn't with me maybe the issue is with you and maybe it's with your word and so maybe this isn't truth Do you see how that goes? Now, proverbs, and we'll talk about this uh, uh, shortly. But this is wisdom literature, and this isn't telling us absolute truths. They're general truths, right? We have to understand that when we interpret, and we'll talk more about that uh, later. But we have to understand that this isn't a promise; it's a general truth. It's an axiom. You know, it's 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 a general truth, but but this shouldn't be held as a historical truth. Does that make sense? Because your child can depart, and we'll talk more about that later. Uh, that, so as we look at the literary process or the lit- literary aspects of Scripture, we have to define a few things, and we've done this briefly. Uh, of course, you know this, but that's sometimes just a reminder of what we're talking about. Uh, when we talk about a biblical genre or a genre in life, we're talking about a category of literature w- which is to be read and inter- interpreted according to distinct and specific rules that are assumed upon the writing. Uh, w- we, we know all kinds, and we've talked about this briefly, what types of, uh, of genres we have today. We've got editorials. Uh, what are you going to get in an editorial? It's an opinion, right? It's someone's opinion. Uh, f- fiction, we, we understand that fiction is fiction, right? Uh, Facebook statuses, nonfiction histories. Uh, uh, emails text messages autobiographies biographies love letters uh, all of these must be interpreted in different ways Uh, in other words uh, not all literature can be read the same way now we understand this to be true in life but often we fail to associate that with the bible what we have in the bible is we have a collection of all types of different genres of uh, uh, and each one has its own set of rules Uh, The scriptures were not written in a Bible type of literature or an inspired genre. They're they're different genres that are all lined up. God accommodated his word into the language and literature of man. And so as we interpret, we have to understand that not all things are the same. Not all things are the same. Uh, Types of literature or genre uh, in the Bible uh, and this is where we'll spend the majority of our time this evening uh, talking, uh, we've got history and narrative, and, and there are understood or assumed uh, 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 points uh, in which w- w- or ways in which we will interpret history and narrative, and we do that in life already. But it also changes because, here's the fun fact, the way we see history, it's not always the way other cultures see history. <clears throat> Have you ever looked at the genealogies of Jesus in Matthew and Luke and compared the genealogies of Jesus? <clears throat> Would it surprise you if I told you they were different genealogies? They don't line up the same way? And so then we have an issue because the way we see genealogy is many of you have done this in your families. Uh, You do a family tree and you and and you study your history and your ancestry and all that jazz. And that's a hot thing today. Where you uh, isn't a little freaky? Have have any of y'all done the genealogy stuff where you send your DNA off? It scares me a little bit. You know what I mean? It's a little weird, especially when I see like these murder shows where they track down the killer by using one of those things. I'm like, man. Somebody's going to knock on my door one day, and I haven't killed anyone, I'm, I haven't, but man, they're going to say, listen, we found somebody in your family has done it, and I'm, all I'm going to have to say is my brother, right? <laughs> I don't know, what, uh, it freaks me out a little bit, but, but uh, 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 genealogies are different in the Bible as what we'd see in today. In the first century, a genealogy was much more than just an actual account or a factual account. Uh, of heritage there's more to it than that and that's something we can get to later but um but but understanding the types of literature not only the broad types but even within these types you have subtypes so it can be quite confusing again we can't read the bible all as just god's word while it is it's god's word accommodated in man's literature Uh, we have poetry within the bible uh, we have wisdom literature in the Bible. We've got prophetic writings in the Bible. We've got epistle or letter uh, in the Bible, specifically uh, the New Testament. L- the difference in an epistle and a letter is sometimes uh, uh, de- determined by a-, a letter is generally written to an individual. An epistle uh, uh, is written with the intended uh, uh, purpose for it to be distributed among many. Uh, that's a small uh change there. but And then you've got apocalyptic literature. Um, and we'll talk more about each of these as we go throughout this evening. Any questions about that? Does that all make sense so far? Okay. Um, here, here's another way to see that, and, and this is on uh, one of your pages um, in your handout. Uh, wh- what we've done is we've taken the book of the Bible, and then we've put it in the genre category. We've categorized it in a genre, and then we've, we've given it a purpose statement behind those those specific books and genre and, and so if you look at the top line there genesis exodus the numbers and and all that uh the genre is his, history or narrative and the purpose of it is to give a theological history in narrative form <clears throat> now, now we'll be breaking down all of these categories but think about how that changes when it comes to poetry uh, the poetry section here in Psalms, for example, emotional praises and cries to God. It's different than history. Uh, it, it, so understanding, so so I guess the question is, well, how is this beneficial in our Bible study? Well, the first step of that is just understanding that what we're reading is not just Bible. It's literature, and we have to interpret it through that lens. Uh, we'll refer later to this, but uh, the book from week one that I suggested uh, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth by Gordon Fee. It's a fantastic read, and he dissects much of this in that book, and it's very beneficial because um, um, we're just doing an overview here. Um, here's a little image that kind of helps us as well, where the, Bibles of the, the books of the Bible are categorized in their, in their section uh, uh, here. Um, again, we interpret these all differently. Uh, another fact here, which I I I think this is a a neat illustration here. Why would you think that history or narrative would be 60%? I'm sorry? Yeah, yeah. So why do you think God would allow the majority of his word to be in narrative form for practical reasons? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. I think that's true, but 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 I think there's more to it than that. Uh, think about it like this. Um, have you all seen? Um, have you all seen? I'm trying to think of a movie. Hold on. Um, Gone with the wind. Has everyone seen Gone with the wind? Do you remember the story of Gone with the wind? Or I don't know, Braveheart. Have you seen Braveheart? Remember the story of Braveheart? Do you remember the sermon that was preached the week before you watched Braveheart? Do you remember the sermon that was preached two weeks ago? <laughs> no. It's, it's, it, story captures us, doesn't it? A story is easy to remember. It's, I, I, I'm, and that's why we were driving home last night. We had a birthday party in um, Williamstown for my mother-in-law. and We are driving back, and grab I grabbed my iHeartRadio, and I turned it on to 90s country. And, and, man, I was, I was loving it, and the kids were like, Dad, can we please listen to stuff, uh, K-pop or something, something like that? And I was like, no, we're listening to good music tonight because I'm in charge. Uh, and, and, you know, like, all these great songs are coming on. And then I, I went back to classic country, and I was like, girls, this is fantastic. Here's some good old Willie. And, and here's why I love Willie Nelson, for example. Like, you, can, you, you, like you, you get it. There's a story that's being told. Like, you, you resonate with that story. You can remember that story. We were driving the other day. I'm going to tell myself a little bit. We were driving. It was just me and Naya, uh, who's 13. And it's been hitting me harder recently uh, that she is growing up. And so, you know that, that dumb song, uh, Cinderella? Cinderella? I'll dance with Cinderella. <laughs> so that comes on the radio, and we're driving down the road. And of course, I've got my sh- sunglasses on because I'm cool. And uh, um, we're, we're going in the road, and I'm kind of singing that, and she's playing on her phone or whatever. And she looks over at me and she says, Dad, are you crying? I'm like, no, I'm not crying. Leave me alone. <laughs> You're, you know, No, I'm not crying. But, but that story just captivates you, right? Well, I, I think that's why much of the Bible is written in story, because we can— we, we can see it, and we can remember it, and it's like we can become immersed in it. Okay. Go back to my notes. Uh, so, so let's start talking about history and narrative. Uh, history and, and narrative. Uh, when we look at the history and narrative section, uh, we see that the majority of the Bible is made up of this. We've got much of the Old Testament is written in uh, in history and uh, narrative form. And then we've got history and narrative in the New Testament in the form of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. So let me ask you, what is, let's just look at the the, the New Testament for example. Uh, what is Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts telling us? What is that history of? Jesus and what he did. What he did. And then the book of Acts is the Great Commission, and how Jesus continued to build his church and built disciples, and so it's written in narrative form, a history form. Now, we've got to think about then, what is this history wishing to convey? Um, Let's think about the characteristics of history or narrative. It's telling a story uh, about which the parts cannot be isolated uh, uh, from the whole. And so when you read in 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 acts chapter one for example and and you see that the disciples is you know so jesus has been crucified dead buried raised the disciples are now uh there and there's 11 of them right why because somebody's missing who is it judas all right he's out all right uh and so what did they do they had to choose another apostle right they had to choose another one and so what did they do y'all remember they cast lots. They they selected a couple guys that had been with them from the beginning, and they cast lots. Now, as we look and read that story, we ask ourselves the question, is that descriptive, or is that prescriptive? I mean, is that the appropriate way, perhaps, uh, to choose a pastor at your church? Well, let's roll some dice. <laughs> you know what I mean? Let's see how—you you, you see— it's it's describing events. It's not necessarily prescriptive, and sometimes that can get is into trouble. So we have to ask the question: Is this describing an event, or is this giving us a command, a prescriptive uh, thing in which we're to do? Does that make sense? Uh, think about uh, think about. Um, uh, uh, it's it's got to be a part of the whole, and so uh, I, I encouraged a couple weeks ago: if you're going to study the book of Romans, for example. Then don't just study Romans 6, uh, read it for for what it was intended. And the book of Romans was written uh, originally by Paul. It was sent by, uh, was it Priscilla maybe? Uh, And it was meant, the intended purpose of Romans was for it to be read aloud in the assembly. And so before you start studying Romans... It would be a really wise thing to do to kind of block off some time and and read the whole passage out loud, the whole letter out loud. Or perhaps put uh, an audible Bible in and listen to it read to you. Because that's the intended form in which it was supposed to be conveyed. Uh, uh, We want to take uh, uh, Matthew, for example, a a history, a a biography of Jesus' life. We want to take that as a whole, and we want to start there, and then start to dissect it. Now, think about another uh, characteristic of history or narrative: uh, you've got character development throughout it. Boy, you've got that largely in the in the Gospels with the disciples, don't you? You've got a lot of character development. You see uh, a change in the disciples as you as you see Jesus continuing to build his 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 disciples. You have a plot, you have a climax, you've got a resolution. Um, it's theological in nature. Uh, see, it's, 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 uh, history and narrative is not always answering questions. It, it, it's just describing the story uh, about God and what he has done. It, it's, de- it's describing what has happened and what God had done. You, you know, one of the big things throughout history, think of the Old Testament, for example in the history of, of, of God creating everything and establishing a kingdom starting, uh, starting in Genesis chapter 12, and how that narrative continues until you have the kingdom of Israel and the divided kingdom and this whole history here. When you think about that, realize that as I read the account of David, it's not about good guys and bad guys even the good guys throughout the history narrative sections are, are bad guys, right? So we have to be careful as we read not to moralize everyone, because while David might be a good guy in this chapter, and this paragraph, here, here soon he's going to be a bad guy and do something boneheaded, right? And, and so we have to understand it's not just, it's not to be moralized, I guess is my point. Uh, largely it's easy to remember. Do all, does that make sense? Any questions about that? That seems pretty pretty straight. Uh, uh, ag- again, in How to Read the Bible for All, it's worth, uh, Stuart and Fee tell us this, is that biblical narratives tell us about things that happened, but not just any things. Their purpose is to show God at work in his creation and among his people. The narrative uh, glorifies him, and it helps us to understand and appreciate God. It gives us an idea of who God is because of what he's done. It gives us a picture of his, uh, of his providence and his protection. At the same time, they also provide illustrations of many other lessons that are important to our lives. But that's where we have to be careful because we can't just simply moralize people because the good guy might be a bad guy in just a second. And if the good guy does a bad thing, does that mean we can do a bad thing? Well, no, right? And so we have to interpret it through that lens. Any questions about history and narrative? Does that make sense? Uh, let's talk about poetry for a second. It's artistic writing uh, birthed from the emotional disposition of the writer that served, uh, uh, prayer, worship, and praise to God. Think about poetry for a second. Uh, how is poetry different from history and narrative? It's confusing? Yeah. It, it's, not, it's not logical, right? What else? Isn't there usually like an underlining like, knowledge or something like you need to know in some of them? Perhaps. Like reading between the lines type of deal? Uh, uh, well, well it's, it's, not, it's not on the face anyway. So history is going to tell you. Um, uh, if I was to write a history of my marriage with Amanda or our according to marriage, I'd say, well, Uh, we met here and we did this and we did this and we did this and eventually we got married and that's a linear logical pattern. But in poetry, well, all that's out the window. All logic is gone, right? I mean, you know, I I can't even make up a poetic line. I'm not that creative. Um, But that goes out the line. So so now there might be, well, I I might be able to say like, you know, uh, I don't know, we met under the sun in a of meta, well, I don't know, but, but it's not, it's not linear, it's not straightforward, it's not on the face, you've got, well, what does that mean, right, a- and sometimes without knowing the audience, you don't know what that means, right, if I were to say to Amanda, from day one, we've been in harmony, well, that mu- d- well what's that mean, you know, you, you would think, well, maybe that means uh, they, they, they are in a harmonious marriage, uh, if you know us, that's not always true, right, we've always had ups and downs, but we met in a church named Harmony, well, well, that changes everything, doesn't it, right? Um, yeah, I, I mean, think about poetry. The, the, the poetry that we have examples of in, in the Bible, it's Psalms and Song of Solomon. Um, uh, let's think about Psalms for a second. Uh, well, both of them, the characteristics of them, they, they often follow a rhyme. Now, sometimes, here's another uh, issue that we have today in our Bibles. We understand that the Psalms weren't written in English, they were written uh, in Hebrew or Aramaic in some, some of them. And, and so the language is different. And so while originally it rhymed, perhaps, it doesn't necessarily rhyme today. Uh, originally, it might be written like, I, I don't know the word for it, but like A, B, C, D, E, F, G, like in our alphabet. And there might be a line for each one, each letter. Well, in the Hebrew, that happens in some of the Psalms. But we miss that because we don't use the same alphabet. And so it changes, right? Um, uh, think about poetry. It's easy to memorize, right? Man, man we, lo- we love poetry. We do this today. Again, Willie Nelson. Listen, maybe not most poetic, but definitely a poetic type in his writings. And you hear it and you remember it. Why? That's, where we're, that's how we're wired. I, I, I think this is fantastic. When we know this in Psalms because we remember songs all the time. Uh, what we sing here on the weekend. I, I think sometimes that's much more important than what we preach. Why is that? Because what I say or what Sammy says, you, man. sometimes I know it's going in one year, not the other. And we know that because we're looking at you, right? And listen, I know many people think they're smooth. But we know, all right, we can see you nodding, and that's okay. But listen, you hear songs, and you hear lyrics to a song, and it sticks to you, right? It's glued to the soul, and so we, we, we get that. Um, often contains prophetic elements, messianic psalms, uh, elements that, that are pointing forward to Jesus. Uh, for example, Isaiah 7, I think. Uh, uh, no, I'm sorry, Psalm 7 uh, uh, r- refers to uh, we we look back and we see it referring to Jesus, but at the time, well, did they understand it like that? Well, not necessarily, right? Um, it's emotional. Listen, it's up and down, up and down, up and down. Emotional. We know how to interpret emotional people, don't we? Lord, how do we interpret emotional people? Because <laughs> you're here. How do we interpret emotional people? If I come to you and you know that I'm often like this, and I say, Lori, I had the best day ever, you're going to say, okay, that's good, John. Glad you had a good day, right? But we know emotional people have highs and those, and we interpret those things, and so just because I said I had the best day ever doesn't necessarily mean it was that great of a day, right? Highs and those, and so the same thing with the Psalms. We'll see an example of that here, here, here in a minute. I mean, think of how manic-depressive David is. Holy cow. Oh, God, why have you hidden your face from me? Why have you turned your back on me? I'm thinking, David, hey, chill down, chill out. God, we, we know from the corpus of Scripture that God hasn't hidden his face, right? He's, he's up and down, up and down. So we understand that when someone is up and down in our life, we don't take everything at face value. We understand the highs and the lows, and we interpret and do that. And same thing with, with the Psalms. Uh, there's often parallelisms uh, throughout it that often are lost in our, in our scripture or in our English language. Um, there's a lot of symbolism. Um, you know, there's calls of judgment. Think about the impurgatory uh, Psalms. Those are the Psalms where they're like, God, uh, bring death to my enemies. <laughs> wow. I didn't know you could pray for that, you know. Wow. Well, David says that I must be able to do it. God, kill my enemies. Well, we understand you can't. No, that's not how you interpret uh, poetry. That's not how, you you know. um, Christ to God laments. This has been uh, very beneficial for me personally in the past couple years. Reading through the lament psalms and seeing uh, how they are structured and how I can, because there are times where, man, things are just going bad, and I struggle. How do I gripe to God without being naggy? The Lament Psalms teach us, teach us to do that. You know, we don't, ha- we don't have to hide our hurt, our baggage, our, our issues, our pain from God. We can cry it out. And we have great examples of that in the Psalms, in, in the Lament Psalms specifically, of how to appropriately do that. Uh, um, and that's a whole another study that we could do there uh, songs of praise uh, we, we see all those uh, think of Psalm 13 how long O Lord will you forget me forever how long will you hide your face from me now how must we read this different from let's say a history or narrative Would, uh, can God forget no so we understand that this isn't teaching a theological truth about God you see what I'm saying that's where we have to be careful. Um, think of p- think of this. Let death come uh, deceitfully upon my enemies. Let them go down alive to the grave. For evil is their dwelling in their midst. Th- this isn't saying, hey, look, uh, this shouldn't be an example of our prayers necessarily, <laughs> right? This isn't well, well. I can wish death to my enemies because David did it, so it must be okay. We read it differently. We interpret it differently. We understand that it 's a psalm uh, uh, synonymous parallelism psalm think about this uh, the, the The second line restates the thought of the first line using different words. We know this in life, we know this in the songs we listen to sometimes we we skip over it when we 're reading the psalms. He who sits in the heaven laughs, the Lord scoffs at them that 's saying essentially the same thing isn 't it but it 's repeated often for emphasis uh, uh, does that all make sense with Psalm? Okay, let's look at uh, wisdom literature. Uh, it's literature intended to teach about trans- transcendent truth and values, giving keen insights to virtuous living. How we read wisdom literature is different from history, from poetry, uh, all that. Let's, let's look at our, our, our wisdom literature. We've got Job. We've got proverbs. We've got Ecclesiastes. We read these different from histories. We read these different from 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 uh, 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 psalms or uh, uh, poetry. Let's think about the characteristics of wisdom literature. It's an in, it's intended to produce a godly perspective and character. It's sometimes birthed in or through negative circumstances. Uh, it's normally already written within uh, principles. Um, or axioms, uh, general observable, tr- observ- observable truths, but they're not promises, and that's sometimes where we get hung up. They're short, pithy, with limited context, uh, written to to convert the naive. They're easy to misunderstand, especially in Job or Ecclesiastes. Think about Ecclesiastes for a second. Uh, vanity, vanity, everything's vanity. It's all worthless. There's nothing new under the sun. How we deal with those passages change. We can we could definitely become a Debbie Downer if we just take that and say, well, there it is, so there we go. Okay? Uh, now, as we study these passages, understanding the type of work, the type of writing that it is, uh, that can help us interpret it in a much different way. That's why it's so good to have a good uh, Bible commentary with you as you go through these sections. Uh, to brush up. And sometimes it's just a matter of knowing I can't read this the way I read everything else. Um, You know, this is one of those areas, the literary gap is one of those areas where where sometimes it's mundane to point this stuff out because we know this, but often we've never applied this to scripture. Again, we know how to read an email differently from an editorial, but we don't always apply that to scripture. Let's look at prophecy. Uh, prophecy uh, oh, prophecy um, prophets were covenant enforcement enforcement mediators who spoke on behalf of god to israel and to the nations their writings served as announcements calls to repentance and warnings how we read this has got to be dependent on this type of this type of very uh aspect i uh, think about this prophecy we've got old testament prophecy Uh, You know, you see the four here that are leaning over, Uh, those are called the major prophets. Now, why are they the major prophets? Any ideas? Compared to the others, these four are major because of the amount, the volume of the work. It's not because they're more important prophets, all right? The minor prophets aren't lesser prophets, they just have less content, and that's how biblical scholars have separated them in the past. So, you've got the major prophets, you've got minor prophets here, and then you've got in uh, the New Testament and the book of Revelation, which is a, a subsection of prophecy, which is apocalyptic literature. Now, again, I didn't point this out, I don't think, earlier, but in each of these genres of Bible text, within the genre, you can have a subgenre. So, prophecy, well, Revelation is prophecy. It's also apocalyptic. Apocalyptic is looking to the end of the world, Right? There's some of that in Daniel, for example, Uh, and so um, even within prophecy, or think about within the pastoral epistles, in the epistles uh, there can be poetry within the epistles. Often we miss that today because we don't see the poetry aspect of it because it's in a different language, but in the native language we would have caught that because it would have rang true to our ears. Sometimes Paul quotes different songs or different sayings from his day. So then when we're reading Paul's letter to, um, to Timothy and he says, here's a trustworthy saying, and then he says his thing, um, uh, we can look at that man and we can say, okay, he, give, he gave us a clue. Here's a trustworthy saying referring to something outside of him. So now whatever he's saying here next It probably has ties elsewhere, and so I should read that differently than the the surrounding text. Does that make sense? I feel incredibly boring tonight, guys. I'm sorry. Um, This thing about characteristics of of prophecy. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Will you write that down? (laughs) Uh, Characteristics of prophecy. Think about this. Uh, When we read prophecy, it's the closest thing in the Old Testament to an epistle. These prophets were, also, were often uh, heralds for God, uh, cor- correcting, rebuking, teaching the people, right? So they're speaking on behalf of God. Their primary function was forth-telling, speaking to the people for God. It's Old Testament preachers to a degree. Uh, often direct announcement of God, thus says the Lord. And so in prophecy, uh, throughout the prophets, you have uh, God speaking to prophet who speaks to the people, okay? Uh, our job on this end of the prophecy, we've got to discern whether the audience is is, is Israel or all people. Is this well? And this even plays over into the epistles in the New Testament. Is Paul talking to the church at Rome specifically, or is there this timeless principle applying to all people? Does that make sense? Same thing in the Old Testament. Is he talking about uh, Israel, or all people, or Israel as the people of God, which would convey to us, or all of creation? Uh, Announcements of things both far and near. I heard this illustration, I thought this was a great way to see it. The prophecy throughout Scripture is often written from the prophet's point of view. It's revealed to him from God, and the prophet's writing that from his point of view uh you you, you've been out west right you've seen the mountain ranges in the distance and you think man those mountain ranges are are right there right i mean you see mountain peaks and you see mountain peaks and you think oh boy that's that's just down the road a little ways little do you know it's 200 miles before you get there right but think about mountain ranges like this let me simplify here you see four mountain peaks there right and you think well they're just all there from your point of view but if you looked at it from the side, there's a gap. And that's sometimes what we see throughout prophecy. You see an up-close prophet. You know, the prophet can't tell the time or the distance here. Okay? So often these prophets are talking about uh, the coming one, the Messiah. Uh, the one who's going to save Israel. They won't use... Okay, let, let me rephrase. Often they'll talk about a Savior for Israel. And they might be talking about a king being born who's going to be a a noble king, a good king. But if you look to the side, you see he's also talking about Christ and the incarnation of Christ. Does that make sense? How that time gap can happen? Okay. Um, Often highly symbolic, uh, apocalyptic prophecy deals only with the end of the world. I remember my first uh, youth ministry in eastern Tennessee. Um, I started, uh, somewhere in like November of the year. I think it was about November of the year. And I think that's true because I think we had just had a presidential election. And, um, I can't remember exactly what it was, but I remember going into Sunday school with my five youth group kids in our Sunday school class at a small country church. And, um, one of the girls, Reagan, um, she says, "John, I'm I'm scared. Can we talk about some stuff?" To-? And I was like, Are you sure. What's going on?" And she's like, "Well, I'm just afraid of the, the end of the world." I said, well, "What do you, Why?" And she said, "Well, the Antichrist is here." I said, "What do you mean the Antichrist is here?" Well, Dad says uh, that Obama, President Obama, is the Antichrist, and so like I just I, like what's gonna happen to us? And I thought, "Oh no!" And now I'm stuck in a pickle because her dad was the chairman of the elders. I'm <laughs> like, "Well." Don't tell him, but your dad's wrong. <laughs> Which was a lot of fun. And then she told him, of course. That's the first lesson I learned in youth ministry. Don't say, don't tell. <laughs> so she, told, And then that was a fun conversation um, with her dad. Uh, it's dangerous. And every generation has done this throughout history. Uh, uh, tried to apply apocalyptic literature to today. Well, you know, this beast, it must be, you know, the mark of the beast must be, it was said uh, years ago, the mark of the beast must be your social security number. Many people pushed back against that when, when that came out. You know, listen, and, and now, you know, it's, it's said by some, well, the mark of the beast is now the vaccine. And if you get the vaccine, you're being marked with the, Come on, you know. Careful, careful, careful. We've got to be very careful because apocalyptic prophecy deals with the end of the world. Um, you see how that can be twisted? I don't have to paint that picture anymore, do I? Uh, let's think about epistle and letter. Epistles are letters written to an individual, a group, or a public audience. The main distinction between a letter and an epistle is that an epistle is a letter intended for the uh, for the public in general. Um, now, does that mean that a, a letter um, cannot be applied to the public in general? Well, no. We just have to understand what it is and 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 we have to understand the context of that letter. Think about the pastoral epistles, uh, Timothy's and Titus, right? Uh, they're written. First Timothy's written to who? Timothy, right? Uh, it's set in time from Paul to Timothy specifically, dealing with certain situations and issues. Even though it's written to Timothy specifically, is there benefit for? people as a whole absolutely is it for, beneficial for people who are pastors uh because he's written to past uh, pastor timothy who's who he's trained up absolutely but it's still generally uh, uh uh applicable to all of us uh here are the the pictures that we have or the epistles i'm sorry the epistles that we have letters that we have uh in the bible A characteristic of an epistle or a letter, well, just like our letters today, they have a greeting, they have a body, they have a farewell or a conclusion. They're occasional letters often addressing one or more problems. This is important when we consider the uh, epistles because our first question has, to, one of our f- first questions must be, well, what is his, why is he saying the things he says? In First Timothy, he talks largely about you have the Spirit of God within you. You have the power to continue to keep going. Well, the occasion matters to that. N- knowing that Paul's writing to Timothy, who is discouraged because of some false teachers who have left the church, who have uh, be- become co- combative in the ministry, uh, that's an important thing to understand. The context, context is king, and so it, it helps us there. Uh, written to the church age people uh, in the ch- written in the church age to people in the church. Um, sometimes we have a a hard time wanting to apply commands to Christians to the world as a whole. Okay, now I'm not saying the world as a whole. Wouldn't be benefited by following the commands of the Bible. What I'm saying is, often we have to understand that uh, the way we treat one another within the church is different from the way we treat one another outside of the church. Uh, for example, if you see me living in constant sin, uh, uh, you know, often it's said, "Well, don't judge, other people, don't judge, don't judge." We hear that from the world a lot. We even hear that within the ch- in the church a lot. But here's the thing. You have a biblical command. If you see me living in sin, to say, hey, John, as your brother or sister in Christ, let me tell you, this is what I'm seeing. Can we talk about it? Now, I can say, well, you can't judge me. You got your own stuff. Well, I mean, I can say that. We do that all the time. Uh, But there's a biblical command there to hold one another accountable. But sometimes we have a hard time realizing that we can't expect non-Christians to live as Christians. Why? Well, a couple things. One, why would they? Secondly, can they? The the, the Bible teaches in the New Testament that we are sealed with the spirit that empowers us, right? We're set free from the bondage of sin. Listen, if there are people who are in bondage of sin, which is bondage, Can we expect them to just get up and walk away? No, listen. They need the Holy Spirit. They need to be broken free from that bondage. We understand that if we sometimes slow down to think about it. And we understand the challenge of telling someone who is in in bondage, you're in bondage, if they don't see that as bondage. You know what I mean? Like sometimes that can be really hard because I'm not in bondage; I'm, I'm a free man. I, you know, sometimes that can be hard, and so we have to we have to navigate those waters quite a bit. Uh, let me get back on it here. Uh, logical flow uh, we see that throughout the the epistles; it's uh, it's logical, so we can read this differently than we can the Psalms, for example, because there's often an argument that's built on. An argument that's built on an argument, a preposition that's tied to this and that. And, and so it builds. It, you know, w- Whenever you read therefore or for or just as, for example, uh, when you read those words, those should pause us to say, okay, what did he just say? What was the point he was just making? Because he's going to take that point and build it on here. Right? Um, think about Paul in chapter 6 of Romans. Paul starts off chapter 6 and he says, what shall we say then? Okay, let's pause. What shall we say? He's referring to something that's been said, right? So he's going to take this idea and apply it. What shall we say then, he says? Shall we continue to live in sin so that grace may increase? Well, he's just talked about the grace being poured out, right? How, how, how our sinfulness is God's opportunity of highlighting his grace, so, so then, he asks himself, uh, shall we continue to sin so that grace may increase? If the more I sin, the more grace pours out on me, well, shouldn't I continue to sin so I can be a billboard for God's grace? Paul says, shall we continue to sin so that grace may increase? Absolutely not, he says. Or, don't you know? Well, we pause and we say, huh. Or, don't you know? Paul's now going to refer to a previously established teaching That must be popular within the church at this point or don't you know he says that when you were baptized into christ jesus you were buried with him in his death and so now he's going to see how that builds and how those those lines refer to different things and and so then the way we read forward here we we can read romans chapter 6 1 through 15 in a matter of 25 seconds but if we're going to study romans chapter 6 1 through 15 we've got to spend some time thinking about what's being said and how each clause is tied to the one before or after it. Does that make sense? Okay, let's look at some combat training, some issues that we have when dealing with literature. Uh, An issue would be reading um, the incidental historical texts as prescriptive rather than descriptive. Uh, The example we've already used uh, here tonight uh, is Acts chapter 1. Judas is gone, they're going to choose a new uh, disciple or apostle. What do we know about that new apostle? Does anybody remember his name? No. Does anybody remember anything he wrote? No. Anything he wrote? No. Any any church he planted? No. So why is that there? This character becomes a minor, he's replaced, he replaces Judas, but we read one mention of him throughout the New Testament. So, so why then is Acts chapter 1 deal with that account? It's not prescriptive of how to select a pastor. It's just telling a story. It's telling the account of what happened. And so, uh, so it would be a, a bad idea to say, well, in Acts chapter 1 they cast lots, and so we need a new pastor, and so let's roll some dice and see what, ha- what happens, right? That's not the good, uh, a good way to do that. Um, yeah think think uh, uh, prescriptive prescriptive uh, information that provides the reader with principles that they are to apply to their lives and then descriptive incidental uh, uh, material that describes the way something was done but is not necessarily meant to encourage the reader to take the same action Think about this one, Uh, Genesis 2.24. We've heard this before. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. What we skip, we've read that, and we've become so comfortable with that. What we often forget or don't realize is that the word there, to leave his father and mother, means to abandon his father and mother. If we read it for what it is, what it's intended, if we took a Bible dictionary and we went through each word and we looked at the meanings, it would, on its face, say, a man should abandon his father and mother and be cleaved with his wife or united with his wife, and they shall become one flesh. It's not telling you to abandon your folks. It's just talking about the, the type of relationship, and so that that changes its meaning when we look at, and that's a it's just a silly example because we're familiar with it, but it, there are times throughout Scripture where, where this, this type of thing would be, Well, it'd have much more dire consequences if we took it for what it is, right? Um, What Jesus says, it's better for a man to gouge, uh, 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 in John, watch paraphrase, to gouge out your eye than to look at a woman lustfully. I know a lot of guys that look lustfully at women. I've been there myself. I'm not walking around with one eye or blind, right? So how do we, you know, that would be a bad thing. I, there's a serial killer documentary that I've recently watched where the mother of the the guy that grew up to be a serial killer, surprise, surprise, uh, she would use these types of passages about gouging out your eye, and, and she would, you know, scold him and beat him and stuff for doing bad things as a kid, uh, and he ended up being a serial killer. Um, wh- wh- and, and of course, he had a lot of animosity toward God and the church, and that's why he killed Christian people. Uh, but it's because this was abused, and um, I'm not sure how beneficial any of that last paragraph was for you, uh, but welcome to my life and my brain. Um, <laughs> the questions to ask yourself about narrative. Uh, when we're reading a narrative, um, <clears throat> how do I tell if this is prescriptive or descriptive? Well, the questions we should ask in that is, is there a command here that, to, that should be obeyed? Is there a sin here to avoid? Is there an example to follow is there a promise to claim? You know, especially with the example to follow. We see this a lot throughout the Old Testament, for example. And we see David as a mighty hero of the faith many times, but he's also a knucklehead many times. And so we have to be careful to understand that the Bible is not about good guys and bad guys. It's about a good God who is saving creation, saving mankind through, inf- through imperfect knuckleheads. Right? And so while David might be our example one moment, in the next paragraph, that doesn't mean he's always the example, okay? Uh, Newspaper eschatology. This is an example of uh, my my youth group kid, Reagan. A practice of interpreting the prophetic and apocalyptic portions of Scripture in light of current events. We all understand that one, yeah? Uh, Allegorical interpretation. The process of interpreting the Scriptures as allegory Uh, with every passage having a a hidden symbolic layer of meaning. This can be incredibly dangerous. Uh, Again, we have to look at each passage for what it is and not try to find a hidden gem in it. Not all passages. Some passages might have nothing to do with you. They might have no command to follow. They might just be telling the story. We have to understand that. Uh, Let's look at the uh, field ops here, the third commandment. We've been going through the commandments, looking at how to interpret them. What's the third commandment? Without looking at paper, what's the third commandment? I'm sorry? Try again. What's the third commandment? It deals with, it starts with an N, ends with an aim. It's not any in aim it is someone specific's name it's the, taking the lord's name in vain so uh, thou uh here is the 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 command you shall not take the name of the lord your god in vain for the lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain what does that mean go tell me Yeah, so like saying like the major one, right? Like G.D., right? That would be taking the Lord's name in vain. What else? (laughs) Yeah, saying like, oh, my God, right? Yeah. Yeah, I just said it in church. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, So, well, so here's a conversation I had this week. And I'm trying. Listen, I've been... I don't know if you all know this about me. I've got, I've got opinions that sometimes should stay to myself, <laughs> okay? And I'm learning that slowly but surely. Sometimes there's no benefit of saying things that I say. I, I'm learning that slowly and painfully. Um, hmm. Th- let me tell you this. Um, this stood out to me this past week in a, in a pretty staunch way. And I, I don't, I'm not going political, but it's a, a political example. Uh, it is incredibly popular today to see all over the place, let's go, Brandon. You're seeing that in the news, yeah, 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 all that stuff. And we understand, I, I, we probably understand the history of that phrase and how that came to be, right? It might be hilarious. But I found myself asking myself this question. Would I allow my child to substitute use like substitute profanity, right? Would I allow my child to do that? Uh, now, there, there, I've got a skewed view on profanity overall. P- profanity is culturally set. We understand that, right? What is profane in our culture is set by the culture. Uh, would it shock you if I were to say to you, for example, that Paul uses? Uh, the equivalent of the S word in his writings, when he says, uh, 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 um, uh, "Everything I want in the John Watch paraphrase, everything I once want, once was, is now rubbish or dung." The, uh, some translations say, "The word that's used there is the equivalent, the the modern day Greek equivalent of the S word." Huh. Now, why is he doing that? He's using that as a point. He wants to drive, it's kind of like a provocateur, right? He's, he's driving home a point there. Now, I'm not saying, we'll go say words, right? Now, that's not my, uh, my argument. Uh, but, but profanity is set by the culture. In our context today, the let's go Brandon is a substitute for another phrase that you all know, right? And so, would you allow your child to say that other phrase? I would hope not okay so okay let me let me elaborate uh real quickly uh several weeks ago during a nascar race um there was a chant in the crowd that that started and that chant was um a four-letter word Joe biden okay and that became and it was on the news and the news reporter was like oh look they're the the guy the who ran the who was who won the race, his name was Brandon. And so the the news reporter tried to cover it up and say, well look they're ch- chanting, let's go Brandon, let's go Brandon. And so now it's tongue in cheek, all over the place, let's go Brandon, and that's all over the news. And the, f- funny whatever, but would I allow my child to say a substitute profane word? No, I w- I, I I wouldn't. Uh, uh, so we had this conversation the other day uh, a man and I did and I said listen we we can't say that in our house and of, co- of course she wasn't saying it but we it came up in a conversation because it all came down to what is the standard that I'm teaching my kids right and so i mean <laughs> the way it's been dealt with has been hilarious okay <laughs> um but i'm not going to allow my my kids to use substitute profanity i'm not going to allow them to say something like that because it is substitute profanity right um now sometimes we have to catch ourselves and we, we look we all do it we all we are okay listen if i'm working on something i drop something i might say it, a, a word but we, if we we get that but by principle our goal is to and i've been burned with this recently um our goal is to portray the image the likeness of christ and all we say, and, th- and I kno- listen, I know, I know, I know that I've said things in the past. Publicly, I've said things from my mouth. I've said things online uh, that do not portray the love of Jesus. But that's what I want more than anything. And I understand that sometimes the way I say things and sometimes my countenance, my, my demeanor might be a wall that stops someone from hearing the love of Jesus. I don't want that for them. I don't want that for me. And so we've got to we've got to think oh oh that's okay. I was like how do we get here? <laughs> um so uh we've got to, we've got to think about that as we go through our life. What time is it? Oh man. Okay, we got time. We got time. So so um so w- how, what does this mean? What does the taking the Lord's name in vain mean? Well, maybe it's oh, saying oh my god, right? As a substitute profane word. Um uh, or, or using uh, the Lord's name. What else might that mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can, can you give me an example of that? Like, like are you saying, like, well, saying, what do you, what do you mean by that? Uh, he, he said, "Would it be like using God's name to, uh, in a vain way, in order to make oneself superior?" Yeah. 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 That 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 could mean that. Yes, absolutely. That might be an application for it. Uh, here's what I want to get to, and I think that's a good observation. And I think that's going to tie into the back end, okay? What about, what about taking the word "I am"? Have you ever thought of that one? Because we we learned this in Veronica's Bible study two years ago. God is the great "I am." So when people say like the negative aspects of it, "I am worthless," "I am nobody," "I am," you know, the, it's kind of going the same direction as. I've, I get the idea and I think it's a good noble thing. Yeah. I'm not sure if it lines up with uh with the third command. because um, we're t- we're starting then with the English working back to the Hebrew, right? right. So I am, you know, it's ego I me, right? right. That's what that's w- what almost got Jesus killed throughout John's Gospel. I think it's seven times throughout the John of go- the, go- the John of gospel the gospel of John uh that Jesus says I am the bread of life. Now, he said I am many other times, but the way he said that, the w- specific words that he used were drawing on and from uh, Genesis, uh, A- A- Exodus chapter 3. Ego I me, right? So, ego I me, the bread of life, right? That's what almost got him killed uh, earlier on. Uh, I get the principle that you're saying there. Yeah, the negative yeah, the negative effect, yeah. yeah. And I and I get that. I'm not sure if it lines up with this. That's the way we've seen it, but I want to I want to ask us to think about the 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 context of this and the the the, the 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 context of this and and work it through our diagram here. Okay, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. What did that mean to them then? Remember again that these are people who are leaving Egypt, and Egypt uh, uh, was a polytheistic culture. Okay? Remember how this is, is going to build on the first two commandments. So, Egypt is a polytheistic culture. There were many gods, many gods were worshipped. Okay? To take the name of a god would mean, again, there's an element of control there. There's an element of, 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 um, uh, of, well, just of bull there, right? Where you could say, well, on behalf of God, I tell you this. As we wa- walk through the ancient audience, we see that when we look at the third commandment, God's telling the Israelites they're not to use his name uh, as the culture of the day, used the names of their gods using them to cast spells or pronounce blessings or curses, okay? Because that was a popular practice in in this uh, world, in this time. That's a popular practice in Egypt. If I'm going to battle, I'm going to summon the god of war or his prophets, and the prophet's going to say, in the name of (laughs) uh, you will be victorious, right? Taking really kind of your first point there, uh, uh, making the prophet then seem like a person of authority, gaining authority by speaking on behalf of this God, this deity, uh, this false deity. Uh, God's telling his people, hey, don't, don't use my name as the world uses. That's why God's name is holy throughout Scripture. Uh, it's never really translated appropriately throughout the Hebrew text because God's name was so holy they wouldn't even write the Hebrew characters that would spell God's name. It's written only through the Old Testament text. It's only written with consonants, no Hebrew equivalent of vowels. It's just consonants because it's so holy, we're not going to use his name in, in, in an appropriate way. If we look at this and we say, well, does other scripture back this up as we take it up the chain? Well, yeah, it's backed up in these other passages. So then we take a theological statement a timeless, to a timeless audience. God's people are not to use his name in any attempt to gain power or to give validity to their statements when he has not spoken. Do you see how this lines up with your... I think it would be absolutely wrong to say any political official is God's sovereign one. Because God is a sovereign one, right? We contextualize that for today. Don't use God's name saying he said something that he did not say. Well, that... The, the, as we walk through this, we see that principle carries on even then as well. God's prophets spoke on behalf of God. They used God's name and spoke on behalf of but Do you remember the punishment for being a false prophet? <laughs> Dead, right? Uh, how many times can you be wrong as a false prophet? <laughs> when I was, uh, I was taking a motorcycle riding safety class years ago when I started running a motorcycle, and I, took, I was taking this class, and I, this girl kept falling off her bike, the, the little 120cc bikes, and she kept falling off. And, man, she was angry. She was a- aggravated. Um, and finally, the instructor pulls her aside and says, like, hey, look, you, you got to go. You can't pass this class. And she's angry. And her boy she came, and she yelled at her boyfriend, and he comes out. And they were perform off because he, he, he had done well, but she didn't let him finish. Cause, boy, she was mad. Um, part of her problem was she was wearing these big black boots with – Heel's about that size on this little, anyway, goofy. Um, so when they left finally, and it, boy, it was a scene. I mean, it was a hot mess. Uh, and somebody asked the treacherous, said, hey, how many times can you wreck a bike and still pass? And he said, well, let me ask you, how many times can you wreck a helicopter and be a helicopter pilot? <laughs> All right. <laughs> uh, uh, same thing with prophets. Uh, uh, throughout the Old Testament, a prophet who was a false prophet is to be, to be put to death uh this is the statement that that carries out of that third statement it's much more than just you saying oh my god that's why you know and, and sammy sammy said this as well when someone comes to me and says hey the lord said to me and told me to tell you this i think like, mm-hmm. makes me a little nervous right um so i think if the lord wants to talk to me he's he knows how to find me right like he can speak to me sometimes we got we got to be careful. I'm not saying that's all wrong. I'm just saying we've got to be careful when we're making statements to make sure that we're not speaking on behalf of God when God doesn't say certain things. I, th- I think we do this in multiple ways. Look again at Proverbs where we started tonight. Train up a child in the way he's good and when he's old he will not depart from it. And we live by that principle and we train up our child right and then that child departs from that way and becomes a, a prodigal child and we say, well, Well, either I failed or either you failed, God, right? Well, maybe, I think sometimes we fault God for things. You know, I think we've all done this. We've all faulted God at times. That's part of the Psalms, right? God, oh God, why have you hidden your face from me? Why do you turn from me? How long will you ignore me, God? And God's saying, I'm not ignoring you, dude. I'm right here, (laughs) right? Open your eyes. We've all fall to God. Uh, we have to be careful not to attribute things to God that aren't God, right? We've got to be very careful there, and that's the, that's the, the, the principle that we see through uh, uh, the third command here. Don't use God's name saying he said something that he did not say. Okay, questions, comments about all this literary stuff. I know this is probably the driest portion, I promise you, even the Greek part of this talk will be more exciting than tonight's portion, okay? Because we know all this stuff instinctively, we just maybe, it's important sometimes to remind ourselves of genres uh, within the Bible. Any questions, comments, thoughts? Fantastic. I'm going to take your silence to mean I did a fantastic job um i i will tell you that this is a great resource here how to read the bible as literature uh by reichen also uh, again i can't stress it enough how to read your bible for all it's worth by fee and was it douglas is a fantastic resource Uh fantastic resource short book i mean it's one of those good toilet readers <laughs> yeah y'all yeah, 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 do that too cool um all right <laughs> uh, no no okay uh that must be me. I think that's all we have. Uh, next week, I want to invite you to come back. And next week is a special week because it's going to be a worship and prayer night. All right? Kids are welcome. Yeah, families are welcome. Bring everybody. Anybody, everybody. Youth group's still going to go on next door. Uh, they're going to be over here for a couple songs, and then they're going to go do their lesson. And we're going to spend time uh, uh, praying for our local government officials. We're going to be praying for our state government. And we're going to be praying for our national uh our our federal government uh and so that'll be a a, a neat night of worship and prayer and we'll go back and forth all night it'll be a lot of fun so come and join us for that and then the week following that we will finish how to study your bible series and then we will uh, uh what we'll do then is we will have a week off i believe it's a week off because of thanksgiving and then in december or whenever we meet back, I guess it is December, we're going to start doing a Christmas series, and we're going to be looking at the, the Christmas story uh, in, the New Test, uh, in the New Testament and how that ties in the Old Testament. We'll just do some Christmassy stuff, okay? Thinking about the birth of Christ to get us prepared for uh, this Christmas season. Okay? Uh, I'm going to pray for us. Any questions, comments, thoughts, feel free to holler at me. I, I thank you, thank you, thank you for being here uh, this week and each week. Uh, let's pray. Lord, we come to you now. We thank you so much for the opportunity, again, to be here, to dive in your word. And God, we we know very clearly, we get, we. you've blessed us with your word. Um, but Lord, sometimes it's hard for us to read it. Sometimes it's hard for us to understand it. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask that you help us to understand more each day. Again, we thank you for the freedom, the privilege we have. <laughs> God, we thank you for children. We thank you for our children. We thank you for our children that are, that are next door. And God, I ask that uh, you help us be the men and women, mothers and fathers that, uh, that you've called us to be so that we can bring them up in your ways. We thank you for Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.